Scripture reading this morning comes from Mark 7, verses 14 through 23. That's Mark 7, 14 to 23, and this is the NIV. Again, Jesus called to the crowd, or called the crowd to him and said, Listen to me, everyone, and understand this. Nothing outside a person can defile them by going into them. Rather, it is what comes out of a person that defiles them. After he had left the crowd and entered the house, his disciples asked him about this parable. Are you so dull, he asked. Don't you see that nothing that enters a person from the outside can defile them? For it doesn't go into their heart, but into their stomach, and then out of the body. In saying this, Jesus declared all foods clean. He went on. What comes out of a person is what defiles them, for it is from within, out of a person's heart, that evil thoughts come. Sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceit, lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance, and folly. All these evils come from inside and defile a person. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we're thankful so much to be able to be here this morning. We're thankful for our health, Father. We're thankful that uh, you have given us a good night's rest and that you have blessed us now with this opportunity to come and to worship you. We thank you, Father, for listening to our prayers. We thank you, Father, for always being there for us. We thank you, Father, for loving us so much and desiring that we as, uh, as believers in you will be as pure as we possibly can while we live on this earth. And we pray, Father, that we can be an example and reach out uh, to others, uh, always, always looking for who we can serve. We pray, Father, this morning for uh, Sam Brown's family and the loss of Betty. Father, that's a a large family, a good family, and we ask your blessings on them, that you comfort them in this time of uh, losing her, and I think especially of Jack, Father, and ask that you would be with Jack in in the loss of his wife. We thank you, Father, for Jesus. We thank you for the great hope that we have through him. We thank you, Father, that he came to this earth and lived and walked among men and taught us how to love. Father, and taught us how to be compassionate, taught us, Father, to look out for the needs of others and to be uh, considerate of everyone, no matter what their uh, role in, on this earth might be. Help us, Father, to be like that. Bless us, Father, with a loving nature. Thank you for uh, caring for us. Pray, Father, you be with us in this time uh, of worship to you this morning. Be with Jesse, Father, as he delivers the message to us. And this is our prayer in the holy name of Jesus. Amen. If you're using a book and would like to, you can mark the song of encouragement uh, after Jesse's message. Uh, that song will be 730, What a Friend We Have in Jesus. 730 after Jesse shares uh, his his thoughts. And then before the... Uh, before the uh, Lesson this morning, we'll sing number 523.
Our God, he is alive. We'll sing the first, second, and fourth verses. Let's all stand, please, once more uh, as we sing as we sing this song. Let's all sing out. There is beyond the azure blue a God concealed from human sight. He tinted skies with heavenly hue and framed the worlds with his great might. There is, there is a God. He is alive. From dust a God created man. He is a God, the great I am. There was a long, long time ago a God whose voice the prophets heard. He is the God that we should know, who speaks from his inspired word. There is a God, he is alive, in him we live and we survive. From dust our God created man, he is our God. The great I am, our God, whose son upon a tree, a life was willing there to give, that he from sin might set man free, and evermore with him could live. There is a God, he is alive, in him we live and we survive. From dust our God created man, he is our God, the great I Good morning. So good to be here with you this morning. Uh, I am always thankful for any time I get to spend, uh, any time I get to speak. I'm thankful for this opportunity. Uh, I would ask you uh, be thinking of Andy and be praying for him as he's traveling, and uh, he is actually going to another week of camp. Bless his heart, he's doing two weeks in a row. Uh, but he is actually directing this camp, uh, Palmetto Youth Camp uh, in South Carolina. So I just pray that you'll be with him and his efforts and uh, all the planning he's put into. Uh, I know a little all too well about how, how hard a work we put in for those camps, and I just pray that, I ask you to pray that uh, that would go well for him. Uh, as mentioned before, me and the youth group just finished up uh, another week up on the mountain, and it was a fantastic week, uh, a wonderful, wonderful week. A couple of memories that stood out to me this week, and if we can go ahead and go to that next slide. Uh, one of the memories that stood out to me the most happened on Tuesday with some of our young men leading uh, the worship service in chapel on Tuesday. Um, these are not all the, the boys that were pictured, but uh, there's uh, Ethan and Ashton Risher, and then there is Ben Webb and Cade Kirby. Uh, the two that are not pictured were Owen Webb and Parks Fowler uh, actually opened us up in prayer. Uh, 
Ben actually read scripture, and uh, Ethan and Ashton led our singing, and then Cade Kirby actually uh, led our devotional, and he did such a great job. Uh, at, at third grade, he stood up in front of a Bible camp and delivered a, a great devotional. So, so proud of those guys, very thankful for them. Uh, and then Wednesday was also another great day, the next slide. We had two uh, of our girls be baptized uh, on family night. Uh, Lily and Kaylee McCown were baptized by Mark uh, right after family night, and that was a beautiful thing. Uh, the youth group was able to go down and surround the pool and, and be with them and witness that and join, and join with them and uh, praise God because of that. Um, we also had several of our members uh, serving as counselors, kitchen staff, and I, I just want to say thank you for all of your hard work this past week. Um, we could not do everything that, we, that, that happened this week without you guys, without giving up a week of your time, some of you taking vacation to come and do this, and we just, I just want to say we really appreciate you guys. Thank you so much. This morning, we're going to be continuing our series as we're walking through the Gospel of Mark. That's what we're doing on these Sunday mornings. And we're looking at this series uh, called, Who is this Lord We Love? And we're seeking to answer that question better every week. What we, what we can learn or how we can better know our Lord Jesus. And this morning, we're going to continue our walk through the Gospel of Mark. And if you will, turn me over to Mark chapter 7 if you have your Bibles. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, there's a black book right in the pew back in front of you. Uh, you can use that, and that starts on page 842. Uh, 842 is where we're going to be in the pew Bibles. Uh, but in Mark chapter 7 is where we're going to be this morning. And when we find Jesus in Mark chapter 7... He has just finished feeding the 5,000. If you look back in Mark chapter 6, Mark chapter 6 was packed full of these amazing, very powerful events. Uh, he, he has fed the 5,000, and then he has sent the disciples ahead of them in the boat. Uh, and we have this great story of Jesus coming down from the mountain and walking on the Sea of Galilee to them. And the disciples get scared, and they say it's a ghost. And he says, don't fear, it is only I. Um, we have one of those accounts. And then... When he gets into the boat, they get to the other side. They land in a town called Gennesaret. Uh, and Jesus' reputation has followed him. People are starting to recognize and they're starting to see Jesus. And these crowds are starting to track him and follow him. And in Mark 6, right before we are this morning, Jesus, or Scripture tells us that as soon as the people recognized him, the whole region, not just this city, but the whole region that he is in, People were coming from all over the place, and they're bringing their sick, and their lame, and their afflicted, and people, people that they believe that only Jesus could help. And look with me, uh, right above chapter 7, look at me in Mark, in Mark chapter 6, verse 56, because I think this is really powerful, and it sets the stage for what we're about to read. Mark 6, verse 56. And wherever he came in villages and cities or countryside, they laid the sick in the marketplaces and implored him that they might touch even the fringe of his garment. As many had touched it were made well. Picture this with me. Think about what that verse has just said. No matter where he goes, no matter where he turns, Jesus is seeing people who are hurting who are being brought to him by people who have heard of this amazing power, most likely people who have seen every person that could have claimed to heal, heal these ailments, fix whatever was going on in their lives, and time after time, dollar after dollar, they're still left in the same state. These are people who are desperate and who have come to this man who they hear 
can heal the broken, who can heal the sick, the blind, the lame, who can do amazing things. And what a powerful image this is, this idea of streets and marketplaces lined and full of people who are sick and are suffering, all calling out to Jesus and Jesus doing what he does best, meeting their needs, healing the broken. It calls me back to the passage we spoke of last week, and Andy did a wonderful job with the woman with the bleeding issue. Jesus' power is becoming known. Word is spreading of a man who is so powerful that even if you touch the hem of his garment, you can be healed. So people are coming in droves to experience this power, and hundreds of people are being healed. Needless to say, we get the idea from Mark 6, verse 56. We can assume that the disciples in Jesus have had a very full day. They go across to actually seek rest, and what they find is more work to do, more people who are in need, more people who need Jesus. So pick up with me in Mark chapter 7, verses 1 through 5. And in Mark 7, 1 through 5, they sit down to eat and to rest. That's, that's what we see the disciples doing and Jesus doing, but it be, quickly becomes unrestful. Pick up with me in Mark chapter 7. Let's read those first five verses together. Now when the Pharisees gathered to him with some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem, they saw that some of his disciples ate with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands properly, holding to the traditions of the elders. And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other traditions that they observe, such as the washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. And the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, Why do your disciples not walk according to the traditions of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? And he said to them, well, we'll get, well, got a little ahead of myself there. We'll look at Jesus' response here in a bit. So in these first five verses, so Jesus and disciples, they're eating and they're resting, obviously because of the people's responses, because of the droves of people that have come to Jesus. Jesus now has the attention not only of these, of all these people, of people who are seeking help, but these religious leaders as well. He has the attention of the scribes and of the Pharisees. And when they approach Jesus and his disciples, they get very upset because they see that Jesus and his disciples are eating with defiled or unwashed hands. Now Mark tells us that this was a big deal because the Pharisees, uh, because the Pharisees had taken these cleanliness laws that we see in the Old Testament to a whole new level. What, what the practice of the Pharisees would do is they would, they would find a law and what they would do is they'd build these hedges of protection in these forms of rules, right? So if the law was you shall not eat with defiled hands, well then they would build this tradition that you must wash your whole body or wash your hands before every meal so that you wouldn't even risk getting close to being unclean. Because when you read Leviticus and Deuteronomy, when you read the cleanliness laws, becoming unclean was something that was really impactful in your life. There was different waiting periods depending on what type of uncleanliness you, you came in contact with. You could not enter into the temple. You could not do certain things. If it was an uncleanliness so bad, you might have to actually exile yourself. So these Pharisees have built these hedges of protection around these laws. But that becomes important because they're pushing so much these traditions, right? Not really the law anymore, but these traditions. And so this is kind of where we see the Pharisees. And when they see Jesus and his disciples eating with these unwashed hands, they come down hard on Jesus and his disciples. And Jesus responds 
rather harshly. Look with me in how Jesus responds in verses 6 through 13. And he said to them, Well, did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites? As it is written, the people, these people honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as the doctrines, uh, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. You leave the commandments of God and hold to the traditions of men. And then he gives them an example, uh, one that everyone would have been familiar with. Look at me in verse 9. He said to them, you have a fine way of rejecting the commandments of God in order to establish your tradition. For Moses said, honor your father and mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, if a man tells his father or mother, whatever you would have gained from me is Corban, that is, given to God, then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or mother, thus making void the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down, and many such things that you do. When I first read this, and as we first read this, your first response might be, Wow, Jesus, that's, that's kind of harsh. They're just simply asking a question. Jesus, maybe they were just seeking clarification. Why come down so hard on them? Why call them hypocrites? Why, why, do, why say these harsh things? But when you think about what Jesus has just finished doing, you can understand his frustration a little more. Jesus and his disciples have just gotten done healing hundreds of people performing literal miracles. Think about the fact, think about that fact. Think about what what it would be like to witness something like this. The Bible doesn't give us specifics on the of these people that Jesus has healed. We don't get a list of the people that we see that are laid in the streets in Mark 6. But if these people were anything like the other people that Jesus had interactions with in scripture, then Jesus' interaction with these people would have most likely given all of them their lives back. He's not healing people with colds. He is causing people to walk, healing lepers, making the unclean clean, and thus giving life back to them. We don't know for sure, but we can assume that there were probably people who haven't been able to hug their family in years because of the uncleanliness They got to go home that night after their encounter with Jesus. There may be people who haven't walked from the time they were young and they were able to walk away from that encounter. Think about that fact. Think about that as we see Jesus interact with these people all throughout scripture. I think about witnessing that. How would you respond? What would your response be I thought about this question myself as I was studying this, and my, my hope and my prayer is that my response would be one of worship, one of amazement. I would hope that I would bow at Jesus' feet and I would recognize him as Lord based on what I had just seen. That was the response of the people that Jesus healed. Almost every time we see Jesus have an interaction with people like this, they leave completely changed and a recognition of who he is as powerful and mighty. But these Pharisees, these religious leaders, the people who knew the scriptures better than anyone, who have been looking for the Messiah for centuries, they see Jesus do all of this. They see him performing these miracles. And they come to him, and instead of responding the way that we would expect someone like them to respond with worship or praise, 
Instead, they pass judgment upon him for not following not even the laws of God, but the traditions of men. When these men, who are the religious leaders, respond to seeing the majesty and the power of God with defending what they want instead of submitting to what God wants, it's then we see Jesus' frustration come out. And it's then I can see why Jesus would be so frustrated. I imagine in this conflict, I imagine when these Pharisees approach him, all I can think of Jesus thinking is really, I've just healed hundreds of people and you want to talk to me and my disciples about hand washing, about traditions, about, about not even God's command, but your command. That's what we want to spend our time doing right now after you've just seen me do this. And it's in this moment where he calls them on their hypocrisy. Because it's in this moment it's been proven that these Pharisees have an issue of the heart. That's why he references the quote from Isaiah where God says, these people, these people are people who say they honor me, who say they love me, who say they are committed and are faithful to me, but in reality their heart is far from me. And all the things they do, all the worship they offer, the good deeds, all they do is in vain. Because even when they see God act right in front of them, their selfishness will not allow them to respond appropriately, respond correctly. Jesus is frustrated with the state of their heart. Because after seeing all the good that Jesus has done, after seeing people's lives be healed and restored, these Pharisees, they don't even seem to be slightly interested, happy, shocked, They don't seem to feel anything about the wonderful work that just took place right in front of their eyes. Instead, they approach with anger, judgment, jealousy, hatred, bitterness. And they have the nerve to call Jesus and his disciples defiled, unclean, for eating with unwashed hands. This passage reminds me of a similar passage in which Jesus is frustrated with the Pharisees. Uh, if you have your Bible, turn me to Matthew 23. Matthew 23, 23 through 24. And here's what he says. This is in those seven woes passages where Jesus is really kind of addressing the Pharisees and he says some really harsh things. But one of the harshest things I think he says is in verses 23 through 24. And here's what he says. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe your mint, dill, and cumin, Basically, he says, you, you give a tenth of all these different spices and things, not even commanded for you to give, but you do that to make yourself seem more righteous, but continue with me, and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the other. Look at me in verse 24. He really puts it bluntly. You blind, you blind guides straining out a gnat and swallowing a camel. Jesus is frustrated with them because I think this perfectly illustrates what he's frustrated with in the Matthew passage. Is there a better illustration of this than what we just read in Mark 7? These Pharisees just walked through the same streets, saw the same people that Jesus healed, that he has given them their lives back, and instead of praising this amazing thing, that has just happened, they come to Jesus and correct him, not even on law, but of traditions of men. They have completely missed what has happened. They have completely missed the powerful thing that they're supposed to be seeing. They've missed who they've been looking for. 
They've completely missed it. And when I was reading this passage, I couldn't help but think of how many times in in my own life have I done the same thing. When I see Jesus working in my life, I feel conviction through his word. Maybe he's leading me in a direction that I need to go in. Or maybe there's some growth that I know that I need to have, that I've been seeking for a while. Maybe there is forgiveness that I need to give. There's a conversation that I need to have. There's a way I need to respond to certain situations that I know I need to respond better to. Maybe there's someone I should love more or love better. There is more of me that I can give. And instead of submitting and recognizing him as Lord, instead of looking at all the good he's done in my life and saying, Jesus, you're in control. I recognize you as Lord. Instead of doing that, I get frustrated. And I get it backwards and say, Jesus, you, you're not following me. You're, you're, you're asking more of me. You're asking way too much of me. You're asking me to give up too much or to get too uncomfortable. And just like these Pharisees in Mark 7, I can miss the majesty and the power that he has to offer because my heart is not in the right state. Jesus is frustrated because of the condition of the Pharisees' heart. And that condition has them more concerned about the physical filth on Jesus' hands and what that does to a person and how that, how that doesn't follow what they want instead of the spiritual filth on their own hearts that is preventing them from seeing and responding to God appropriately. So Jesus decides that he is going to have a little bit of a teaching moment and these Pharisees are going to be the object of the lesson. Look with me in what Jesus says in Matthew or in Mark, excuse me, Mark 7, uh, verses 14 through 23. And he called the people to him again and said to him, Hear me, all of you, and understand. There is nothing outside of a person that by going into him, he can, uh, into him can defile him. But the things that come out of a person are what defile him. And when he had entered the house and left the people, his disciples asked him about the parable. And he said to him, And he said to him, uh, then you also are without understanding. Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him, since it enters not his heart, but his stomach, and is expelled? Thus he declared all foods clean, and he said, what comes of a person, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. From within, out of the heart of man comes evil thoughts. Sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within and they defile a person. Jesus takes this moment to tell everyone that true defilement, true uncleanliness, it doesn't come from what you eat. It doesn't come from the filth on your hands or your body. It is not those things that put distance between you and God. He says true defilement. What really makes a person unclean, what really puts distance between you and God is what comes out of them. Their actions, their words, the way they treat people. Because, he said, because as he says in verse 21, when those things are present, when we see the things that he lists at the end of this passage, evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, wickedness, deceit or lying, sensuality, following our will instead of what God's will is, jealousy, slander, gossip, pride, foolishness, when those things are present and those are the things that are coming out of us, this is an indication of what is in our heart. 
It is not the stuff on the outside that has defiled you. It is the spiritual filth that has reached your heart and led you to uncleanliness. It is, def- it is a defilement from the inside out. And this is what Jesus is more concerned about. Not what you look like on the outside, but rather what you look like on the inside. Because if it's not right, then we will never be able to respond to him properly. So what do we take from this interaction in Mark 7, 1 through 23? How, how, do I, how do I, what do I do? What are the practical things that I take from my life with Jesus' response and his conflict with the Pharisees and him and the crowds? One of the first things I think we can see is if my heart is not in the right state, I will never be able to respond to Jesus properly. I can see Jesus do amazing things in the lives of others or even my own life, just like these Pharisees. But if my heart is not in the right place, if I'm more concerned about what I want rather than what God wants, if it is filled with selfishness and evil and worldly thoughts, then I will only produce selfishness, evil, and worldly thoughts. I will never be able to respond to him correctly or properly. I will always miss his greatness, his power, because, he's, because as he says in Mark 7, my heart is defiled and it is far from him. Your heart sets the direction of your life. Proverbs 4.23 says, We must keep our hearts with all vigilance, with all vigilance, for from it flows the springs of life. My actions, my thoughts, my attitudes, they stem from my heart. That is why I think Solomon has this urgency when he speaks about protecting the heart. Because if the heart becomes corrupt, the whole body becomes corrupt. When bad things enter my heart... Bad things enter my life. And if that's the case, then we need to talk about how do things enter our heart. Jesus says in Matthew 5, 23, or 22 to 23, the eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness. What we put in front of us What we fill ourselves up with, what we put in front of us is what will fill us, and what we fill us and what will fill us is what will guide us. Let me say that again. What we put in front of us is what will fill us, and what will fill us is what will guide us. If I continue to fill myself and surround myself with worldly thoughts and things that create separation with God, if I continue not to seek His will, and how God wants me to respond to whatever situation I'm dealing with or whatever person I'm dealing with, if I'm not actively filling myself up with what Jesus wants me to fill myself up with, I can never expect those things to be the first reaction that I have. No matter how hard I try, it's just not going to be there. Those are the things that I will produce in my life. When things such as selfishness, worldly thoughts, or desires to follow my own will instead of God's, when those things get into my heart, it creates distance where I can no longer respond to Jesus properly. And it makes me put my needs in front of his. And, when G- and the final thing that I think we can take from this passage is Jesus is looking for people who are going to follow him and not the other way around. This whole conflict in Mark 7 starts with the Pharisees coming down on Jesus and his disciples because he is not doing what they want him to do. 
And it's a conflict because it's not how that's really supposed to work, right? They wanted Jesus to follow their traditions, their rules, their will. They wanted to put Jesus into their life and not their life into Jesus. They had this whole thing reversed. And the only thing, but the only problem about that is Jesus is not concerned about any other will other than the will of the Father. John 5.30 says, Jesus has said, I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. When I come to Jesus thinking that he is going to follow me, and I expect him to fit into my life. When I come to Jesus and try to put him in a box, and then I just come to that box and pull him out whenever I need him, that relationship's not going to work because that's not how Jesus operates. That's not how these things work. When I come to Jesus thinking he is going to follow me, and I expect him to fit himself into my life, that is not recognizing Jesus as Lord. Rather, what is Lord is my life and my own desires. Luke 9, 23 through 24, it's a passage we've all heard, but I think it is one that has really challenged me as the more I've read it. And he said to all, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. And whoever would, whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. When we come to Jesus to follow him, we, excuse me, we come to Jesus to follow him because we should recognize him as the one who has power the control he is the lord god we must follow him it cannot be the other way around these pharisees they come to jesus and this conflict happens because they wanted him to follow their traditions when really what they should have recognized is the power that he had and followed him and followed his will rather than their own I want to end this morning by asking you two simple questions. Is your heart in the right place? Do the actions that you are seeing in your life reflect the heart that you want to have? And more importantly, does God want you to have? And is your heart allowing you to respond to Jesus correctly? This morning, if the answer to either one of those questions is not what you want it to be, we would like to help you with that. If you need prayer, we would love to do that with you. If you, if you are ready to respond to Jesus in baptism, we, would love, we can do that for you today as we can, will you come as we stand, as we sing.